We're continuing on in our series and conversation on the Sermon on the Mount. So we've, we've come a long ways thus far, but actually not that long of a ways. We've gone through the Beatitudes, and we wrapped those up two weeks ago. And remember, the Beatitudes are the congratulations to those who are living in the kingdom, those who know the heart of God. And Jesus has given us a glimpse of what it looks like to follow him in the Beatitudes. He tells us it's the poor in spirit and the mourners and the meek uh, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who are in his kingdom. And then the last beatitude we looked at two weeks ago shifts a little bit and tells us about one of the results of living in the kingdom, and that's that we're persecuted. Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted. And that's the result, one of the results, Jesus tells us, of following him. And it's because you're, you're opposing the powers that be in the world. When we follow Jesus, when we live the Beatitudes, we're saying yes to the kingdom of God, and we're saying no to all the other powers that lay claim over us. Economic, social, political, even spiritual powers that dwell in our world. And that's why we experience persecution. Jesus finishes that by saying an interesting thing, to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. Uh, rejoice and be glad when you're spoken poorly of and reviled, because, as verse 12 says, your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're picking right up here today in verse 13, and what comes next is Jesus pushing this point even further. Right after declaring that the road following him is not going to be easy, it's not going to be a cakewalk, uh, a lot of people will resist, Jesus continues that on, and it's almost as if he anticipates one of the thoughts that's going to pop up in his disciples' minds. One of the thoughts that I know pops up in mine, in your mind, when we read about being persecuted in the world for our faith. It goes like this. I want to follow Jesus. The Beatitudes sound beautiful, but I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be spoken poorly of. I don't want to be seen as out of step with culture. I don't want to look like a bigot or intolerant or narrow-minded. So I'll follow Jesus privately. I'll do my little Jesus thing. It'll be my own thing, and I'll talk about it with my friends who are Christians, maybe at St. Peter's. Uh, but I'll be respectful of those who I don't, who I don't know what their beliefs are. Um, I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable, so I'll just keep it to myself. Jesus knows our hearts, doesn't he? And right after this, he tells us, sorry, secret discipleship is not an option. He says, no, it's not what it's going to look like. Jesus begins to address the relationship of his disciples with the world. So in the Beatitudes, he's painted this picture of his disciples. This is what it looks like. And now he tells us what our relationship with the world will look like. And he speaks to this inclination we have in our hearts to be quiet about it, to avoid persecution. So, and we'll see, we'll see immediately in, the, in, this, in this passage, um, it's as if he's saying, okay, you who are in the kingdom, this is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven, yet still live in a, in a broken world. You, you're a citizen of heaven, but yes, you live in a broken world. So how are you going to navigate it? So let's read the passage one more time. Jesus gives us these two beautiful images to explore. Let's look at them together. Uh, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. It should be on the screen as well. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So the main idea of this passage today is quite simple. It's that the kingdom life is a public life. The kingdom life is a public life. It's meant to be seen and heard and known about. It's not a private affair. It's public. And Jesus says it must be this way. He gives us these two images to understand what it should look like, how this relationship occurs between the the kingdom of heaven, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and the world around us. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In the same way that the Beatitudes declare what the disciples are, who they are, what they look like, uh, he now declares this truth. You are the salt of the, light, of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's just how it is. That's how the relationship works. The kingdom life is public. So we'll look at each of these today and then consider Jesus' final exhortation in verse 16. And that really caps off the first chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a section of the Beatitudes and then this passage. So verse 16 will wrap it all for us. So salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of, light of the world. What is this about? Let's first notice that with these images, Jesus is tying us back to the last beatitude on persecution. Remember, he talked about the prophets who were persecuted. He's putting his disciples in a prophetic role, in that same sort of role. Just like the prophets who were persecuted of old, they were salt and they were light. See, prophets are public people. They live out loud. Uh, They're people who, through their words and their lives, witness against the powers that be. They witness to a different way of doing things in the world. When everyone's going one direction, the prophet is the odd person going the other. The prophet is like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. They're the one crying out, remember the Lord your God. Remember who delivered you out of Egypt and worship him alone. The prophet's the one who goes and starts shouting from the rooftops and the mountaintops what other people are only willing to maybe whisper about in private, or maybe not even whisper, but to think about, maybe to to possibly hope for, but never to speak out loud. I have a dream that one day black children and white children will hold hands and play. Those are the words of a prophet yelled out from from the rooftops that most people wouldn't have been willing to say in quiet. So verse 12 has told us, yes, we'll be persecuted like the prophets. And now we're, we're, we're seeing that we're indeed a prophetic community. And we're called to look like salt and light. So let's look at each of these. Salt. Matthew 5.13 says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how will it be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, what is salt about? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? This, is, this expression has become so common. It's become an idiom over the last decades in our culture. You know, you've heard people say, those people are the salt of the earth. It usually means something like they're really good people, honest people who kind of keep the world moving forward. Uh, but what does Jesus actually mean by it? It's a question we must ask. 
Well, he doesn't exactly tell us, does he? He just says it and then carries on. Um, so we have to think about it. And there's lots of conjectures by people what exact, what property of salt may he actually be referring to. Um, one scholar lists nine different functions that he could be referencing in the ancient world. I think we're on safe ground, though, if we stick with <clears throat> the metaphor and, and, and salt's two primary functions in the ancient world and how we still use it today, really. Um, Jesus, Jesus likely has in mind that salt is a preservative and it adds flavor. It's a preservative and it adds flavor. And, uh, I think Jesus has both of these in mind when he says these disciples are the salt of the earth. In the same way that salt preserves, acts as a preservative on food from going bad and spoiling over time, Jesus says his followers are meant to play this same preserving role in the world. The implication, of course, is that the earth on its own, society on its own, is on a path of decay, is on a path of destruction, that over time, if it's left alone, kind of like food sitting out at your counter for a week, it's going to spoil, it's going to sour and go bad. Because of sin and evil, the earth will go rancid without salt. Jesus is saying, though, his disciples are the salt of the earth. The salt coming, the salt sprinkled from the kingdom of heaven. And we're called to preserve what is good and beautiful and true, protecting the world around us from destroying itself by living life in the kingdom that adds salt to the world around us. Salt also draws out flavor and adds seasoning, doesn't it? Uh, if you use salt correctly and don't dump it too much on your food and ruin it, then it draws out the natural flavors that are there. Um, the, Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message like this. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. I love that. It brings out the God flavors of the earth. And the point is that the earth is filled with the beauty and majesty of God. Sure, it's tainted and corrupted by evil, yes. But Jesus envisions his followers, his, his people, like salt, to not only preserve what God has made, but also to draw out the God flavors, to amplify them, to make them undeniably delicious to the world around us. If people are going to taste and see that the world is good, it needs to be seasoned by salt. The life of the Christian in the world is flavorful and preserving. It's an important task. And it does mean finding resonance with the good things in our world and celebrating those and drawing them out. And using them to point to God. But there's one other thing that salt, that I noticed about salt that I think is worth mentioning. And, that, and that's that it's not immediately visible when you see it spread out on, on food or something. It has a profound effect, but it's also subversive. And the church, as the salt of the earth, also plays a subversive role in society. I'm going to read a short account which describes the church, describes Christians in the second century, only about 100 years after the res resurrection. It's a letter written defending the church, and it describes the church as this salt, as this cultural, uh, subversive cultural salt, and how it interacted with the culture. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by a country or a language or a custom, for nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak an unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. 
But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. That's referring to an ancient practice of leaving babies out for dead when they're unwanted. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. Being the salt of the earth means we're sprinkled throughout society. We share the customs and the clothes and the language of our cities. If someone took a picture of us right now, we wouldn't look like some different culture from Vancouver. But we have a different purpose. We are loyal first to a different kingdom. And the character of our lives is what reveals that our citizenship is in heaven, not first in Canada. We're commissioned to draw out the God flavors of the world and to sanitize the flavors of death out of it. Did you see in that, in that, in that paragraph what the writer notes about these Christians? It's, the, it's their character. It's their manner of life that distinguishes them and reflects their citizenship. They're known for their character, for protecting the lives of the unwanted in society, for treating marriage as binding and women with dignity, for sharing their food. Drawing out and making the God flavors of the world more beautiful is what we're meant to do. This is our call as the salt of the earth, to be public, to be known, to let the world taste and see that the Lord is good. We must be salt for anyone to taste him. And the thing about salt is that unsalty salt is a contradiction in terms. It's a paradox. Unsalty salt just isn't salt. Jesus' indictment of the disciples there at the end is just this. Don't lose your distinctive flavor of the kingdom as the people of God. Otherwise, you'll have nothing to offer the world. You will have become foolish and tasteless, having forsaken the wisdom of the kingdom. You're no longer salt. Don't go that route. The next image is light. Verses 14 and 15 say, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Well, light is a more common biblical metaphor. All throughout Scripture, God's people are known and are called to be light, a light to the nations. And then in, in John, he talks a lot about light, and he says, Jesus is the light of the world. So the call for us, the followers of God, to be the light of the world uh, is clear that the kingdom life must be all about Jesus. He's actually the light of the world. And it tells us it's meant to be public. If light is anything, it's visible, it's seen, it's out there. Like a city on a hill, it simply can't be hidden. Secret discipleship isn't an option. A city on a hill is a great image. It's a communal image. It's the picture of lots of small lights gathered together, which can then be seen from far away. Some are bright, some are dim. This is us, church. We are a city on a hill. Together, we are the light of the world. 
Some of you may feel dim. Some of you may feel brighter. But it doesn't change that we are together the light of the world. We are God's lamp. We are God's chosen instrument to shine his light on the world. You are God's chosen lamp to shine his light on the world. Do you believe that? And my guess is that some of you might not feel much like this right now. You might feel dim. You may feel like you aspire to this kingdom way of living, these beatitudes, they sound great, but it's not actually what your life looks like. If this is you, hear this. Light doesn't generate on its own. It doesn't create itself. It needs a spark. It needs the torch of the Holy Spirit to come and to ignite. You can't generate yourself. You can't force a flame to grow. This is the work of God. But in this place, there is something you can do. Whether the light of the kingdom feels dim or it feels bright, there is something you can do. You can lay kindling. You can lay wood. You can persevere in the day in and the day out devotion of coming to God's word, of going to the Father in prayer, of living in community, of confessing sin, of receiving grace. Each time you perform these acts of faith, it's laying a piece of kindling on that fire in your soul. The life of faith, to be honest, is oftentimes this, maybe more often laying kindling than it is experiencing a roaring blaze of the Spirit. The disciple is the one who continues on when the logs are just smoldering. And the disciple of Jesus can continue on. Without any hesitation, the disciple of Jesus can, you can continue on because you're following a God who is merciful, who shares the sorrows, and his name is Jesus. In chapter 12, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the one who protects those smoldering wicks. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. He will not quench that smoldering candle, and he will hold it gently until he brings justice to perfect victory. You can't force a fire to grow, but when the kindling's laid and the Holy Spirit blows on that smoldering flame, there'll be some wood to be ignited, and it will ignite and be consumed into a roaring blaze when God breathes into that place. So you are salt, and you are light. Jesus now draws these two images together for one final exhortation in verses 1 to 16. A commissioning. Verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus saying, now if you're going to follow me, you only have one option. you got to go public with it. That's how it works. The kingdom is subversive, yes. The kingdom begins as a small seed, even a mustard seed. But it doesn't stop there. It grows. It grows, and it's not a secret to be kept either. It's a pearl of great price, which is small, but it compels you to sell all of you have for it, to sell all of you have, and then to live in a way which bears witness to this gift, to this treasure which you've received. Jesus connects this light that we bear to good deeds done before others, and he tells us why we do them. We do them so that they point to our Father in heaven. But how do we live the Beatitudes, live and do good deeds in a way That points to God and not to us. In a way that gives glory to the Father and not to us. In a way that others see it and cry out in worship. How do we do that? 
well, being a good person isn't going to be enough. Because when we're simply good people, when we do good things, then we're the ones who end up receiving congratulations, not God, and that's not the point. Well, one thing about the good deeds, one thing that means is, is part of the goodness is a winsomeness to our deeds, a graciousness. When our lives are salt and they're light in the world, we will at times be persecuted. Yes, we've heard that. But Jesus invites us to live with an unapologetic graciousness. We are not combative. We're not meant to just go out and pick fights with people. That's not the point. Instead, we proclaim the kingdom unapologetically, but we do it with love, and we do it as good news because it is good news. No one was better than this in recent history than a man named Billy Graham. Many of you have probably heard of him. Graham preached the gospel his whole life. Every chance he got, he tried to preach the gospel. Every conversation to hundreds and thousands of people all over the world in hundreds of countries, in every situation he was given, really. And he was unapologetic about his faith and the narrow way of the cross. But he spoke and he shared with such genuine care and love and concern for others that it took them off guard. It, it took defenses down. People didn't know what to do. Billy Graham went to every length he could to proclaim Christ. And, and one of the most interesting habits he had, I found in looking at him, is that he would go on all these popular secular TV talk shows. He would get invited, and he would go on and be interviewed about God and his faith an experience that most Christian evangelists today would either not get invited to or they would be too terrified to go on of what might happen to them. But he did so anyways. He went on fearlessly because he was so convicted that he had to use every chance he got to talk about Jesus. In 1969, Graham appeared on the Woody Allen show. Allen, Woody Allen, if you don't know who he is, he's a film producer. He's a, a secular agnostic Jew. And Alan interviewed Graham about God and about his faith. Um, Google this interview and go watch it this afternoon if you've never seen it. It's 10 minutes long, and it's just incredible. The humility and winsomeness alongside an unapologetic conviction for the gospel is striking in how Billy Graham manages this. The interview is stuck with Alan for decades. Not long, well, now a bit long ago, but in 2010... Um, Woody Allen commented on this chat he had with Billy Graham in 1969. And this is what he said. Even if, even if, he, even if Billy Graham was 100% wrong, and our lives would both be completed, and I would have had a miserable life, wallowing in a bleak outlook, and he, he would have had a wonderful life, confident that there was more. You see, Graham managed to tell others about the gospel in a way that even if they didn't believe what he said, they wished they could believe it because it was such good news. Even if they didn't believe it, they wanted it to be true. And what an example for us. Can we tell others about Jesus in a way that even if they say, you know what, I don't believe that, but I wish I did because it's so, such good news. So, how do we as Christians engage the world? How do we let the light of Christ shine so that others see our good deeds and don't look at us, but praise our Father in heaven? How is salt and light winsome and gracious? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer envisions it this way, and I think it's helpful. He pulls us to the cross. The cross is the strange light which alone illuminates the good works of the disciples. If the good works were a galaxy of human virtues, we should have nothing to glorify in the the disciples, not God. But there is nothing for us to glorify in the disciple who bears the cross or in the community whose light so shines because it stands visibly on a hill. Only the Father which is in heaven can be praised for the good works. And here it is. It's by seeing the cross and the community beneath it that men come to believe in God. But this is the light of the resurrection. It's only by seeing Jesus Christ crucified, the crucified Lord lifted up, will others worship the Father. That's the only way. Our lives of salt and light will only point to him when they're lived in the shadow of the cross. And they're winsome then because they're not presumptive, because, because they're not cold, they're not done to impress, they're not, they're not lived out of obligation. They don't point to us because they're not our good works. They're the works of God working through us through the Holy Spirit. And when we live and we act and we do our good deeds in the shadow of the cross, our lives will find its content and meaning and purpose in the sacrificial love of God, which always points to the cross. So we're poured out of the salt shaker, and we begin to draw out the God flavors of the world when we live in the shadow of the cross. We're lit up by the strange light of the cross, and we burn as a lamp that shines for others to see when we dwell as a people, as a community in the shadow of the cross. And we rest in being the blessed children of God. We rest in being the blessed people of God. With Jesus as our King and our Father and our friend, who doesn't send us out alone, but walks the narrow way before us and comes with us and leads us into perfect love when we live in the shadow of the cross.